So we uh, have a treat for you today. A friend of our family, Brendan Hiltzabeidel, is uh, going to uh, preach for us today. I'm so looking forward to this. Uh, as Rob is away, Brandon has uh, graciously agreed to preach and preach right in, in, in the line of Matthew. Uh, now, you need to know that Rob has been preaching through Matthew for 16 years. Uh, no, no, it just seems like that long. No, it's been great, and thank you for being willing to do that. I can tell you a lot of things about Brandon, uh, but the best thing I can tell you is that he is a good, close friend of Rob Tim's. And so that is your introduction. Come on, brother. Get him. Thank you, sir. All right. Good morning, guys. So good to see you. My name is Brandon. You do not have to learn my last name. I am going to continue in the book of Matthew. I was shocked to hear that it's taken 16 years because I thought Rob and I were very close. And then he assigned me almost a full chapter of Matthew to cover this morning, but we're going to do it. And um, man, I'm excited. You know, we, we're going to get to the Lord's table uh, in a few moments. And um, that's what we're working towards today is to get to communion. That's what the text is about this morning. So let me get us thinking in the right direction for just a few moments by let's ask, let's consider, reconsider one of the core questions that we all wrestle with in life at one point or another. And that's this, am I bringing enough to the table? Am I doing enough? Are you doing enough? BTW, I, are you doing enough? I don't know. What are you bringing to the table anyway? Who's bringing the most to the table? Perhaps the first time I can remember in my life wrestling with that question anyway was uh, in the fourth grade, I tried out for the fourth through sixth grade Little League baseball team. And I was one of the youngest there, obviously, as a fourth grader. And I'd never tried out for any team before. I was wondering if I was going to be enough. What exactly do I bring to the table for Little League Baseball, right? And the, the one part of the tryout that I remember was that they hit every kid uh, four fly balls. You got four chances to catch a fly ball. They were making it super easy, basically hitting it right at you. I still managed to misjudge one. And so I had to course correct, and it forced me into a diving catch and I made a diving catch. And I, I, I didn't make diving catches. And I remember thinking in that moment, I'm going to get picked. They're going to pick me. And I was the first fourth grader picked, thank you very much, in the fourth through sixth grade league. Yes. But my dad's here with me today. He drove me home, and I remember worrying that I had misled them. I thought, they probably think they've got a fourth grader who makes diving catches, but they have a fourth grader who's made a diving catch. There's a difference. So I wasn't sure that I could bring to the table what they thought I could bring to the table, right? You've all faced that in some way in your life. Are my grades good enough? A lot of kids in here, are my grades good enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I working hard enough? Am I accomplishing enough every day? Am I bringing enough to the table as a parent, as a, as a spouse, as, a, as an employee, as a coworker? It never really stops. So that was the fourth grade. This happened again to me very vividly in, in a moment just last year at 40 years old. I was uh, ex on the executive team at a giga church. And by the, if you don't know what a giga church is, it's just bonkers big, just enormous church. So our executive team is going through this exercise called a nine box assessment. And basically what we're doing is we are uh, 
talking about the teams that we lead and answering essentially two questions. What are they bringing to the table and what do they, we think they could potentially bring to the table in the future? And it's really fun. We're, we're giving scouting reports on the people that we lead and talking about future opportunities. And at some point it hit me that the executive pastor and the lead pastor of the church, all the other on this team, we all reported to them. It occurred to me, they're probably doing this assessment about us. And I said it out loud as a 40 year old. I said, wait a minute, are you guys doing nine box assessments about us? And if so, how do I see where I fall on your grid? 40, so in the fourth grade, am I bringing enough to this little league team? 40 years old, am I bringing enough to this executive team? And that's all of us, like I don't, I don't know you guys yet. I just, Rob is basically my best friend in the world. He says you're great, but I don't know you guys yet, but I know that consciously, whether you think the question or not, you wrestle with the feeling of it. We live in so many ways in a merit-based culture. Like, what we, our success is often based on how much we bring to the table. Our, our approval, what's that based on? What do you bring it to the table? Uh, even our comfort. We get our comfort by what we secure, by what we bring to the table. So am I, do, right? Oh, goodness. You got, we, we all live in the same place. We know. Am I doing enough? Can I be enough? Am I bringing enough to the table? And this morning, we have an opportunity to go to this table probably about 20 to 25 minutes from now and embrace, like I'm, I want to lead you guys for a few minutes to embrace the miraculous imbalance of the Lord's table. I want you to love the inequity of the Lord's table. Rest in the reality that only one person brings the worthiness to the Lord's table. So that's what we're going to do. What we're going to do is we're going to kind of pick Matthew 26 apart. We're going to start in the middle and we're going to read the moment that the Lord Jesus introduces communion to us, celebrated uh, during the Passover. And then we're going to look at the verses surrounding that interchange, that illustration, uh, to, to see what those verses around that moment show us about the men who were at the table that evening. Because listen, uh, this, it's incredible that not only are the elements of the Lord's Supper an illustration of the gospel, we're going to see so are the participants. We're going to compare and contrast what the Bible says about the disciples who came to the meal that night, the first communion ever, and what it says about Jesus. And it's a pretty stunning reminder of the beauty of the gospel. When we come to the table with Jesus, it's not about what we bring, it's about what he brings. So let's begin by reading Matthew 26, and we're going to start in verse 26. And guys, we're going to be jumping all over Matthew 26. So some of you are going to need to flip through your Bibles, some of you are going to need to scroll through your iPads, but just be ready to move. Here we go. <sighs> You guys seem ready. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, giving thanks. He gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of this vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. And... The church, I've preached that for forever. We said that at the end of the passage reading, but there was no response. That was beautiful. <laughs> you guys were ready. Okay, so foundationally what's happening here is that Jesus is illustrating his coming sacrificial death 
through the Passover meal. So the Passover was a time of remembering for the Jewish people. Many of you will know their ancestors out of captivity in Egypt. That's what they're remembering at the Passover. So on this night, Jesus gathers his disciples and he institutes communion. He institutes the Lord's table to show that he was going to rescue the whole world from the captivity of sin and death and hell. So Jesus breaks. The, we're just going to hit the communion elements real quick. Jesus brings, adds, this is my body broken for you. So Jesus is letting his followers know that his body would be treated like the bread. It would be broken and it would be broken for them. Then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Poured out to pay for the, the penalty of my sin and your sin and for their sin. So this is a simple two-course meal that at its first moment, it was prophetic. Jesus is saying, this is what's coming and this is what this represents. But it's meant to be a reminder for us this morning of the fact that Jesus came to rescue sinners like us at great cost to himself, right? Those are the elements. That's the illustration that the Lord's table is of the gospel. But what about the participants? What do we know about the 13 men that were at the table that night? Because the disparity... The disparity between who and what they were is a massively significant and challenging and comforting gospel story all in itself. So we're going to start with the, with the disciples. And watch, this is just from Matthew 26. What do we know about what the disciples brought to the table? And then we're going to do the same thing with Jesus. It's going to be real different. So you might want to make some notes of these lists. I don't know how you take notes in here. Just boop in your iPad or circle some examples in the verses. What did the disciples bring to the table? First, we see they brought indignance and a judgmental spirit. We see that going back to last week's text. This is, this is in verse chapter 6. If, you want to, if you're going to read along with everything today, you're going to do some work, but I think you can do it. Verse 6, it says, while Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table, and when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. And then Jesus comes at them. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done this noble thing for me. So a woman displays this worship and generosity toward Jesus, and the disciples are like, who do you think you are? They were indignant over something that just verses later, Jesus goes on to say would be remembered with honor forever. Her act would be remembered, and, and, and they're coming after it. Why are you bothering this woman, Jesus says. And I just want you to see that these guys were kind of jerks. Like, remember, this is not in Matthew 26, but remember when they blocked the kids from coming to Jesus? And, they're, and Jesus is like, whoa, that's not, that's not how we do things. The list could go on throughout the Gospels. These guys were fairly regularly judgmental jerks. But that's not all they brought to the table. They brought betrayal to the table. Look at verse 14. I don't know at which point I tell you that you're the disciples and I'm the disciples. Let's go ahead and get that out of the way. Look at verse 14. Then one of the 12, the man called Judas, Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? Obviously speaking of Jesus. So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him 
And from that time, he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Whole sermons have been preached on this. But remember, so the adult groups are going through miracles of Jesus right now in Mark, I think. Judas saw this stuff. Judas literally watched Jesus overflow with compassion that we studied this morning. Every, every he, compassion and power, he watched him do supernatural, miraculous things. But because Jesus wasn't doing what Judas thought Jesus should be doing, G Judas betrayed him. So there's judgment at the table. There's betrayal. There was also doubt that they brought to the table. Look at verse 21. Am I giving you time to get to the next verse? Verse 21. While they were eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Deeply distressed, Matthew writes, each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. It's fascinating. So Judas plans to betray Jesus. Jesus says at the table that he knows who's going to betray him. And the other 11 guys all freak out. Matthew said they were deeply distressed and asked, surely not I, which means, which means they weren't sure they hadn't betrayed him or they weren't sure they weren't going to. Now, that doesn't mean that they were doubting who Jesus was in Matthew 26, because we know they did in other areas of the gospel, but they were doubting their standing with him. They were doubting their own feelings towards him. Do I even understand how I feel about Jesus? Everyone, what, is it me? Is it you? Who's doing this? It's like little kids that knock over the lamp together while they're play, playing. Everyone hopes it's not their fault. Everyone hopes they're not going to get in trouble, that they're not the one to blame. Guys, these disciples, they're at the very first communion. They're sitting at the table, and they don't know their own hearts. They also brought cowardice to the table. It's not going to be a flattering list. But picking up where we left off after the Lord's Supper, so they sang a hymn and left for the Mount of Olives. We saw that in verse 31, or in verse 30. Verse 31, Jesus said to them, it's verse 31, tonight all of you will fall away because of me. Now get ready to scroll on your iPad. All the way to verse 56, or flip over to 56. Verse 56, verse 56 says, but all this has happened so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. When Jesus was arrested, the disciples ran. They also brought pride to the table. I'm almost done with their list, by the way. So not only did the disciples abandon and deny Jesus, but they were super convinced that they wouldn't abandon and deny Jesus. Verse 33, 33, Peter told him, even if everyone else falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Guess what? He extra fell away. Verse 35, two verses later, even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. Didn't you, if you've noticed this before, then all the disciples said the same thing. And let me repeat, they ran away immediately. We don't have time to cover the whole list. In the garden, you see the disciples lack discipline. In Matthew 26, you see prayerlessness. We could go on. Just to sum it up, Jesus said to them about them in verse 41 of this same chapter, he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's what the disciples are bringing to the table.
comprehensive weakness. Pride, judgment, doubt, brokenness, sins of all kinds. And guys, that's just Matthew 26. If you read all of the Gospels, you can't help but leave with the impression that these guys just weren't that great. They would not have scored well at an executive level nine box assessment. But here's what's incredibly important. They wanted us to know that. Isn't that really the whole point of the gospel? Jesus said to them, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. And the disciples wanted us to see that truth, even in how they recorded the life of Jesus. Remember, just remember for a moment, that was a gross list of the things they brought to the table. Matthew, the author of the book of Matthew, was at the table. Matthew left in the part about he and his friends were spiteful and judgmental. He left in, I've made it this far without crying, so I've already done better than when I practiced it with my wife yesterday. He left in their cowardice. He left in their pride, their doubt, their confusion. Across the Gospels, we see similar accounts from the disciples that they're just not great. And then we remember that the disciples are the ones who are telling us that the disciples were not that great. Yes. Thank you for underscoring my point. The disciples want you and I to know that when they're sitting at the table, considering the death and the sacrifice of Jesus, they are broken and needy and messed up people who had failed and whose biggest failures are still to come. In light of that, how beautiful is it that Jesus even shows up to have that meal with them. How beautiful is it that Jesus looks into the eyes of these guys who brought the worst to the table and he broke the bread and he shared the cup and he spoke confidently of their salvation through his blood. So in comparison, now, let's consider what Jesus brought to the table. Whew, so much better. What do just the circumstances surrounding this passage in Matthew 26 tell us about who Jesus is and what he can do? So first, a little, just one question, pop quiz. Who knows what the hypostatic union is? Okay, I got a few, great. I'm gonna, I've, I tried to bring a way to illustrate this even for the children in the room. So we'll see, we'll see. I'm gonna make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But first, hypostatic union is the theological term uh, for the reality that Jesus Christ is 100% man and 100% God simultaneously, right? It's been a foundational truth of the Christian faith for thousands of years. Because without the truth of the hypostatic union, nothing else matters. If Jesus is not fully human, then he can't live in our place. He can't stand in our place. He can't take the penalty of sin and rise from the dead in our place. But of course, if he isn't also God, then doing those things would not have any impact, would not have any eternal significance. So the hypostatic union expresses that Jesus is both God and man. So this is a way that I have found maybe that helps. So let me handcraft before your eyes a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I'm going to use the heel to spare one of my kids from having to eat it. This is the actual peanut butter and jelly and bread that was in my pantry last night. Okay, 
So jelly is obviously not as good as peanut butter, so jelly is going to represent humanity. <laughs> so you guys get the idea here. So the jelly, we're spreading the jelly on. The jelly represents also the human joys and happiness and griefs and everything that it means, let me not make too big of a mess, to, to have the human experience. That's the jelly, okay? Leave that there. The peanut butter, so much better. Oh, let's get it thick. The peanut butter, 100% of you are going to want peanut butter and jelly for lunch. Uh, the peanut butter represents the divine, the fullness of God, permanence, perfection, holiness, awesomeness. But look what happens. That was a bad idea. <laughs> I am going to, yeah, it was, I am going to need that to go down. Okay, so here's what happens. I've done this before, but I've never licked the peanut butter knife afterwards before. So when you take a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you don't end up with something that is 50% less jelliness than it was before, something that's 50% less peanut buttery than before. Instead, you end up with something that's 100% peanut butter and jelly. The jelly isn't less jelly because it's in the sandwich, and the peanut butter isn't less peanut buttery because it's in the... They come together, they're both 100% of what they were, and it's delicious, right? Let me get that distraction out of the way. We're going to have ants in the pulpit. <laughs> Listen, that is what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. All, all over the place, honestly, but first comes to mind for me is, is John 1. In the beginning was the Word. Capital W word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him were all things made. Without him was not anything made that has been made. And then if you skip down to verse 14, what does it say? The word put on flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus brings that to the table. So there's Jesus, try to imagine it, standing at the Passover table, breaking bread with human hands, sharing wine with human arms, speaking with vocal cords. But when we look at Matthew 26, we don't just see human features in Jesus, we see human experiences and pains. There's turmoil and distress in the garden, right? Jesus lives through that. We see him angry. We see him disappointed. We see him reclining at a party at his friend's house. 100% human, but what a strange human. So strange, because he was also 100% God. The things that Jesus did and said and knew in his human body were divine, and the disciples saw glimpses of it all the time. He healed people with a word, with a touch. Guys, he resurrected dead bodies in front of their eyes. Remember when... He calmed the storm on the sea with just his words. And the disciple says, what, what manner of man is this? What man? He's the God man. He's the divine man. And that's what he brings to the table. So I want to now buzz through the chapter and show what, show what we can notice about the divine knowledge and the divine sacrifice that Jesus brought to the table. So get ready to scroll around again. In verse 1 and 2. Starting in verse 1 of Matthew 26, Jesus brought divine knowledge of his death to the table. 
Not surprised at all was Jesus. Verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he told his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. He knew. He also spoke prophetically about his burial. Verse 11, isn't this fascinating? You'll always have the poor with me, but you do not always have me. By preparing this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for my burial. Jesus brought divine knowledge of the disciples' betrayal to the table. Verse 21, while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Then skip to 23. The one who dipped his hand in the bowl with me, he will betray you. Betray me. Friends, Jesus also brought divine knowledge of his disciples' coming abandonment to the table. Verse 31, Jesus said to them, Tonight all of you will fall away because of me, for as it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And again, verse 56, which we've already scrolled down for, so don't use your energy again. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. Jesus brought to the table divine knowledge of his torture. Look at verse 38. In the garden of Gethsemane, he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little further, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Hey, Jesus wasn't super excited about what salvation was going to require of him, but he went to the table anyway. He went to, he broke the bread anyway. He went to the garden anyway. He went to the cross anyway. But church, this is so beautiful. Thank you, Jesus. He didn't just stand at the communion table knowing that he would suffer and die and that his disciples would sin and fall away and abandon him. He also knew about his resurrection. Jesus brings resurrection to the table. Verse 32, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. This is Jesus standing in a human body, offering communion to a table full of failures, knowing, but after I have risen, what manner of man is this? What manner of meal is this? So we're about to go to the table together. And what I want you to see is that you can't bring anything to the table that'll change the math. You don't bring anything to this meal that changes how God thinks about you. I just wish I could put, especially you under the age of 18, I wish I could just put that, guys in the middle and the back, I wish I could put that straight into your heart. Nothing you can do outside of the work of Jesus. I'm Now I'm looking at you and you're smiling. Nothing you can do can change how God feels about you. It's all in Jesus. Jesus brings the perfection. If you have a relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus, he brings the sacrifice. He brings the death. Jesus brings the resurrection. And what do we bring? Oh, it's not good. What do we bring? We bring, listen, don't come if you're not going to bring what the disciples brought. It's all you have. We bring our judgmental spirit. We bring our pride. We bring our betrayal. Dang it. 
I almost made it. And our doubt and our need. Jonathan Edwards, what a great quote. He once wrote, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. We contribute nothing to our salvation but the sin that makes it necessary. And we bring nothing to the table but the sin that made Jesus want to show up in the first place. That's why he came. Man, I love you guys. I don't know you. That's why he came. Jesus comes to the table with everything because he wants to leave with us. And we come to the table with nothing. And then we leave with everything. Isn't that amazing? So we're, right before we go to the table, I just want to read you a few words from God's word. And then Ken's going to come. And I just want to read you a few things that these broken us, these guys like us, who were there the first time this ever happened, who did not have the benefit of knowing for sure that Jesus was actually going to do what he said he was going to do. But we now look backwards. Like, the church has been doing what we're about to do for 2,000 plus years. It's history. He did it. The finished work of Jesus is it's not a hope. It's a, it's a happened so I want to read you some of the, just a couple of things that these disciples wrote after Jesus went to the cross. John, one of the not great guys at the table that night, would go on to write years after Jesus' death. See, just let this, go ahead and close your eyes. We're about to go to communion. If you wouldn't mind, just close your eyes. I just want to read God's word over you. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called his children, and we are. If you have a relationship with God through Jesus, no matter how old you are in this room, you are his child. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. One day our list will be just like his list, not just in judgment, but in reality. And then Peter, maybe the worst of the group, if we're honest. After tasting and seeing the forgiveness of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, he went on to say in 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us, you and me, right now, new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And even for you, you are being guarded right now by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to reveal in the last time. That's the beauty of the gospel. We remember right now a faith that is ready to be yet revealed. Thank you, Jesus, for your salvation. So we're going to take the elements now in faith. We're going to respond in joy and in rest because Jesus is enough.